Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hello, this is Simon Brew, and welcome to the latest episode of Film Stories. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies. Movies that had stories. That the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. Stories. We would be honoured if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew. As always, that's all you need to know about me. Um, the podcast, though, the aim of it is to is, as the title suggests, to explore the stories in and around movies. Coming from my firm belief that even a even a bad film is difficult to make, and very very few people set out with the intention of making one. So, what I want to try and do is explore all sorts of stories around fairly mainstream films of production difficulties, marketing problems, challenges behind the scenes, um, and few films face quite the level of challenge uh, in the. 1980s as the one I'm going to talk about first. So let's have a clip from that and then we'll get deep into the stories. Come here, snot nose. That's it. No more Mr. Nice Duck. Let the female creature go. Every duck's got his limit, and you scum have pushed me over the line. Jimmy, do you like to see what I see? A talking duck? Yeah, that's it. I've been doing too much toot. Shoot! <laughs> no one laughs at a master of quack foo. Well, the fact that nobody laughed was part of the problem in that instance. Um, that is a clip from 1986's uh, fairly infamous, uh, in fact, fairly infamous, let's just go with it, infamous Howard the Duck. Willard Hook uh, directed it and it's got the, I, I mean, Howard the Duck is infamous for actually being the first cinematically released Mar- uh, feature film based on Marvel Comics. Um, so uh, in many ways, quite a forerunner. Um, and, and he's most known now for its reputation as uh, for winning Golden Raspberry Awards. I don't like the Golden Raspberry Awards personally, but it's generally regarded as a big blockbuster flop and this terrible film and blah, blah, blah. And uh, there, there was talk around the time that it'd be reevaluated in 20, 25 years time and people would think it was a classic. Then it came back out on Blu-ray in 20, 25 years time and people didn't think it was a classic. My own personal uh, relationship with Howard the Duck, though, is I watched it when I was a, I watched it when I was a kid, and I went to it's the first film in my life I went to the cinema twice to see. Um, I, I ended up a second time just because it was my friend's birthday party, and I wasn't really aware of movie critics at this time. Went to see this film and enjoyed it both times. It's only I learned uh, a few years later on that I was supposed to hate it and not like it. And certainly when I rewatched the film um, a a few years ago uh, for the first time in a long time, you could see all the creaking problems with it. And boy, is it an odd movie. I'd still argue that it's not a film without merits and levels of enjoyment. 
Um, its origins um, go back to a comic book and, and quite a satirical uh, comic book where the, where the central character of Howard is a far a far less nice version than the one we actually see in the film, that he's quite sharp-tongued. And in fact, if memory serves, the uh, the similarities uh, with Donald Duck got, um, got the interest of Disney's legal department which in turn forced a, a, re, a slight redesign of the character, all, all sorts of uh, all sorts of shenanigans. Um, but the idea for doing a film had been around for quite some time before that, um, and in fact, it was Willard Huck and Gloria Katz who were who were pushing the project, and they were also looking, as a consequence, for a studio that'd be interested in backing it. And for a long time, there wasn't actually an awful lot of interest um, until Universal Studios got involved. And Universal had been keen, as pretty much all of Hollywood was at this point, to work with George Lucas. So George Lucas at this stage, and we're coming in towards the mid-1980s, had completed his initial Star Wars trilogy. uh, The Star Wars trilogy that lots and lots of studios have passed on. And people wanted to be in the George Lucas business. And Universal saw an opportunity here and it saw that if it could if it could get the Howard the Duck project and back the Howard the Duck project it could also get George Lucas attached and as the story goes the condition was Universal agreed to make the film if Lucas would executive produce it if he would lend his name to it and it was it was that 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 appeared to be the turning point in getting the film made um, as a consequence, Lucas did agree to lend his name. Now, there's there's no real sense that he was massively creatively involved. Um, nonetheless, this this is very much seen as as a Lucas project, and and he he did he did have his fingers in it. Furthermore, he was also having um, problems. There, there were also challenges that Lucasfilm, without the income from the Star Wars, without a new Star Wars release, um, was stretched that he had ambitious plans for what he wanted to do. He was building his Skywalker ranch that was costing an awful lot of money. And so Lucas, in 1984, stepped down from directly running Lucasfilm on a day-to-day basis because, bluntly, he wanted to make films. Um, Now, whether he wanted to make films because he needed to get projects moving to get cash flow into Lucasfilm to try and find the next big thing, um, that much is is up for debate. But what was very clear was he, he was he was coming away from the boardroom and heading and, and heading down to a, a more hands-on role where he got films up and running. So he wasn't interested in directing Howard the Duck. That much was clear. In fact, an offer went into John Landis, um, who and Landis took the script and had a good read through. And apparently, the the bit that ultimately put him off was the big car chase, uh, a big car chase sequence that was just a little bit too similar to the Blues Brothers. So Landis not particularly keen to revisit that. Uh, passed on the Howard the Duck project and it would be Willem Huck who who would sign up to direct the film in the end it would be the final movie um, that that he would direct now there was an awful lot of work being done to turn this into uh, away from the the, the the edges of the comic book movie, uh, the, the comic book itself into a more palatable as it was seen mainstream comic book movie um, so th- there was the softening of the character, a lot more wisecracking, an actual nicer Howard at the heart of it. 
Um, the uh, originally the plan was to do this as an animated movie, but then there was the thought that a live a live action was a viable approach, and furthermore that Lucas's company, Industrial Light and Magic (ILM), uh, would be able to come up with a physical version of of the duck. Um, and ILM did come up with a physical version of the duck, albeit not one that necessarily worked particularly well. I, don't, I think few people involved with ILM would call the creation of Howard, the, the, the actual character of Howard, their finest work. I mean, at one point, the story goes that seven people were having to cram into the Howard suit to make it work. One of the main operators of the character, Ed Gale, just couldn't see kept falling uh, a, a, a risk of injury there for a start but also the the actual mechanics of a physical production relying on this on 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 the howard character who's been operated by someone who can't see where they were going well you can kind of imagine ju just how chaotic that that came to be i mean the suit itself that that creation of howard cost two million dollars to do you know, and the original plan was: could they get a could they get a child actor in and put them in a suit? And and they went with this far more elaborate construction, and the elaborate construction did not work particularly well. Um, the, the, I mean, the, the total budget of the film in the end was in the thirty millions. If we put that into some kind of context, the, Howard the Duck is a film that cost what two to three times as much to realize as gremlins had um a, a, you know just just a year or two before really although gremlins have, as we've covered previously in this podcast was a, a very extensive production in the case of howard um it was quite a contracted one that filming actually started in november of 1985 and and was the second unit work was only wrapped up and completed in april 1986 with the film entire um released into american cinemas for the first time in august of 1986 i mean that that's really fast for what they were looking to do as with most of uh, most films that, that we've talked about as well the, the casting itself was um, was something of a, a conundrum phoebe cates was in the running for the role of beverly for instance um that role eventually went to leah thompson of course um other people who were in the mix paula abdul was uh, sarah jessica parker laurie singer jodie benson uh for the voice of howard uh john cusack and martin short were were in the mix as well and someone did have to come in and and dub the voice of howard after Afterwards, because there was no way to hear uh, th there was no way to hear the lines on set so that all had to be redone as well all sorts of just complications the eventual cast um would eventually uh would eventually feature leia thompson of course and tim robbins in a i mean in in an early role and i'm fair dues to him he really goes for it uh jeff the, the now disgraced jeffrey jones is in there as well and it was uh, it, it was just a very very difficult film to get from a to b now Fast forward then to the point where this movie was going to be released. And it's important, I think, to, to put that in the context of where George Lucas's empire was at that particular moment in time. Because I think we have this perception that Lucasfilm, as soon as, as soon as Star Wars came out, was financially secure for the rest of its life. That it had negotiated, Lucas had negotiated that he had the merchandising rights and there was a regular through flow of money coming into his bank account to allow him to do what he wanted to do. Don't forget also um, the, the Indiana Jones films are, are Lucasfilm productions. However, the construction of Skywalker Ranch was a massive cash drain 
on Lucasfilm, and this shouldn't be understated, a massive cash drain, and to the point where uh, the company had built to a stage where its simple day-to-day overhead was requiring $20 million a year to be bought in just to pay the bills. And without uh, without a, a, you know, a pipeline full of new Star Wars projects and a pipeline full of Indiana Jones projects, and of course, subsequent movies in both of those franchises would follow, um, Lucas needed films. He needed fil- he needed to bring money in. And so around the, uh, around this time, he was also involved with Jim, Han- Jim Henson in the making of Labyrinth. That he was um, again, he, he he lent his name to that and and had some creative involvement, although it was very much Jim Henson's project. Um, and we will again, let's add Labyrinth to the list of the films that we're going to come to in a future in a future podcast. But it was widely regarded at at the point Howard the Duck was coming into cinemas that George Lucas needed a hit or he was going to be in trouble. And let us be straight on this. George Lucas did not get a hit. The critical response straight away to Howard was so hostile um, and so heavily critical that by the time the movie got released in the UK, the title had changed. It had been changed to Howard, A New Breed of Hero. There was an attempt to put some distance in there. Box office-wise, I mean, it just barely, it, it barely covered its, uh, the, it barely covered its negative cost in takings at the box office. Um, and of course, when you factor in the fact that a movie studio doesn't get the full doesn't get the full whack of every dollar spent at the box office that they had problems so the worldwide cinematic gross was 37 million the production budget was 37 million so you can pretty much work out that of that worldwide gross lucasfilm would have been lucky to see 20 million lucasfilm and universal would have been lucky to see 20 million return to their coffers both would be out of pocket howard the duck was not a big video hit it wasn't the kind of film that made its money back on the home release And as a consequence, the financial disappointment of the movie uh, had real ramifications. So, I mean, let's just look at Universal Studios first. So keen to work with George Lucas, um, the the project just just backfired um, as a piece of fiscal movie investment. It just backfired and there was no way around that. And it ended up with a, a short while later, the studio boss, Frank Price, quitting his role as head of the studio and the inevitable trade press headlines that came uh, as news of his departure was announced tied this very heavily to the box office performance of Howard the Duck. For George Lucas though and weirdly enough for the future of film animation the consequence would be even more pronounced because now without the big cash injection that he was ideally looking for Lucas needed to strip down his empire a little bit he needed to raise money and he needed to sell parts of the Lucasfilm the, the, the Lucasfilm company and, and his related companies and, and things that he was involved in um, and the bit that he chose to sell was Pixar the very same Pixar that we know now for some of the most astonishing animated films of the last 20, 25 years originally started as a small division within Lucasfilm and Lucas would sell Pixar to Steve Jobs at Apple and for a long time there I mean there's there's an excellent book um, there's an a, a, the Pixar touch it's called uh, which charts this story in a lot more detail but Pixar would would continue to bubble to be a part of Apple 
um, with Apple not quite and Jobs not quite sure what to do with it. But its story took a dramatic turn at the point that Howard the Duck failed. And had Howard the Duck not failed at the box office, I mean, you can draw the lines. We may not have had Toy Story. Pixar's future may have been enormously different. Um, Also worth throwing into the mix that one thing that did also add to Lucas's financial woes is just six weeks before in America, the release of Howard the Duck, Labyrinth, scandalously labyrinth had failed to catch on at the box office as well and and jim henson was was devastated at at the and it would be the last film he directed at the box office i wouldn't say failure but disappointment of labyrinth whereas lucas was far more sanguine about it and, and knew that they had something special uh, and i say I, you get the sense that he he felt he knew he knew it would endure uh, there did he feel the same about Howard the Duck? Quite feasibly, um, but it, it's not endured for the same reasons. And in fact, the character has only really come back into the public conscious outside of um, comic book uh, comic book do- devotees, courtesy of an end credits sting in a Marvel Cinematic Universe, which all of a sudden led to a fresh wave of interest in uh, a fresh a fresh wave of interest in the Howard the Duck character. But in terms of his film adventures and his standalone film adventures, that mid 1980s effort at this point in time is the only movie to bear his name. Terrifyingly for the Film Stories podcast then, I'm going to move on to the second film I'm going to talk about in this episode. And it's one that's actually come out this year. I've gone very, very strangely contemporary, most unlike me. Um, In fact, it came out last month. And I'm going to play you a clip of it. And then we're going to go through the quite convoluted story that helped bring it to the screen. Ready, Freddy? Let's do it. to slow down Fred. I just need a bit of time. What if I don't have time? You're a legend, Fred. We're all legends. So then, that's 2018's Bohemian Rhapsody, of course, a film that at the time of this being recorded is top of the box office charts. It's doing stellar business around the world. And it brings to uh, it brings to a successful conclusion what's been a near decade long, uh, near decade long task, really, to bring the story of Freddie Mercury and Queen to the big screen and it would be fair to say and I know quite you know large bits of this story are quite well known but I think it's interesting to go through it anyway because it's the the labyrinthine turns that this has taken have been quite extraordinary and I was in a position where I was news writing for in my previous job and and so lots of these stories were spiking at the point I was watching I was watching it all play out so it first really came to cut the, the, the idea of doing uh, a Freddie Mercury biopic first really spiked. Uh, we have to go back to 2010. And it was in 2010 when Sasha, when the project was announced, Graham King was going to produce. Peter Morgan at that point was writing the screenplay. And Sasha Baron Cohen was in line to play Freddie Mercury. Um, and Sasha, Bo- Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, best known for Borat, of course, um, was attached to the project for many years. This wasn't a this wasn't a fly by night, you know, just bit of um, breezy casting. Uh, he he was committed and dedicated to the project, and so uh, it, 
At first, Brian May um, of Queen, of course, um, was heavily backing of Sasha Baron Cohen's casting of Freddie Mercury. But there was always at the heart of this film um, a story that pulled in two directions. There's because the the Queen biopic and the Freddie Mercury biopic are very different things. Would this be a film that celebrated the band and its music and played heavily to its fan base? Or would it be the film that dug into the shadows, dug into the life uh, of a very private man behind closed doors, Freddie Mercury? And I I think it's fairly clear that there was a dividing line with, with people very obviously on each side. The band were looking for the former and Sasha Baron Cohen was was clearly more interested in the latter. And that came to a head because that came to a head in the summer of 2013 when Baron Cohen departed the film. And and he'd been attached to it for two, three years by that point. Um, And it was that difference. I mean, it's that old champion of creative differences, isn't it? Um, That that Baron Cohen wanted to do um, a a, a more, a a darker, more, well, less PG-13, really, version of the story. Um, And... I mean, it was all put out at the time that it was on. It was on pretty good terms. And in fact, it's only it's only really in interviews that have come to light through the junket process of the movie that it's been suggested that the problem for the band was that Baron Cohen wasn't taking Freddie Mercury's legacy seriously enough. Although obviously we've only heard one side of the story. The project still still came uh, was was still in development. Um, it wasn't derailed completely at that point. There was uh, there was uh, at the end of two thousand and thirteen talk that Ben Wishaw um, was going to take on the role of Freddie Mercury, and um, mo- most notably Dexter Fletcher was coming on board to direct the film. Now Dexter Fletcher, um, of course, I did. I mean, he he's directed a few films now. Sunshine on Leith is just great. Eddie the Eagle is just great. In fact, all of his films so far have been really terrific. Um, and he joined he joined the project, but then left himself fairly after just a few months. And again, there was a creative difference at the heart of of his departure. The story that went around at the time was that he and producer Graham King saw it going in a different direction um, and and development hell continued and continued and continued. The script the script was being reworked. Ben Wishaw um, would depart the film. I believe it was 2014 when Wishaw, dis- when Wishaw left it. Then there were rumours that Sasha Baron Cohen was coming back. Then there were rumours that Ben Wishaw was coming back. Then another screenwriter joined the, joined the project at the end of 2015. In that case, it was Anthony McCartan. Um, and th- it was only at the end of 2015 things looked to be really ramping up and getting serious again when the title of the movie was announced, uh, that it was going to be called Bohemian Rhapsody. But even so, it was it was still taking its time. It wasn't until it was late 2016, uh, early 2017, that director Brian Singer would join the project as its director. Um, and following the appointment of Singer, Rami Malik signed on the dotted line to play Freddie Mercury um, and at that point where a director finally in place with a star finally in place and a screenplay finally in place 
20th Century Fox pressed the green light button. They had the backing of uh, of the, the surviving members of Queen, um, and and the film was was finally, finally, finally going ahead. Um, and <laughs> and so production began in earnest. Um, it was ju- just over a year ago, actually. It started in September of 2017, with the filming located heavily in the UK. The effect shots for the Live Aid concert were being done by Double Negative in London. Um, the, the, the rest of the cast was filled out. Um, the Live Aid, um, I mean, it was fairly clear early on from the set photos that Freddie Mercury and Queen's Live Aid performance um, was going to be one of the centrepiece moments of the film. And Brian Singer at the time was quite active on social media and he was posting images from the production of the film and we saw that the recreation of Live Aid was going ahead and all seemed to be ticking along from the outside at least really quite well. But then at the end of 2017, things kind of, well, things exploded. There had been rumblings of allegations of, I have to phrase this quite carefully, um, inappropriate sexual behaviour um, and just general inappropriate behaviour from Brian Singer. These are allegations that Singer has firmly denied. Um, however, it was, I, I mean, going back to my previous job, um, I, I've written movie news um, and daily movie news for the best part of a decade, really. Um, one of the things I learned, I, I didn't always play by these rules. I'm very much a reformed sinner. But one of the things I learned is to kind of not be, I, I wasn't really that interested in attracting the gossip that um, we, we would have people who sent us news tips um, that we generally didn't run because they were generally about undermining someone or taking pot shots at someone. It was never good news. Um, and so I kind of veered away from those a little bit. And as a consequence, over time, fewer and fewer people used to bring me and, and the outlet concern their so-called exclusive stories. However, it was, I think it was, it was the start of December last year there's me who one of the least contact you know one of the least connected for news stories uh movie news writers at that time um i got three people in in the space of an hour told me that brian singer had been kicked off bohemian rhapsody and we've not got a whisper of this or anything obviously there, there were story there were the other stories rumbling at the time and i put in a i, I put in a note to 20th century fox just to try and find out well what's the facts behind this because for three people three completely different sources and good sources to tell me that um when i'm not the kind of outlet that would run it i, I figured everyone else would be getting the same information and i relayed this to fox just like well what's going on and it was a few hours later that the official statement came out and the official statement said that 20th Century Fox film has temporarily halted production on Bohemian Rhapsody due to the unexpected unavailability of Brian Singer. Now, over the next day or two, the plot would thicken. Thus, on the 4th of July, the Hollywood Reporter would run its exclusive story um, saying that Brian Singer, it wasn't a, really a mutual departure, that Brian Singer had been fired. Um, and in fact, the headline of that was Brian Singer fired from directing Queen Biopic after onset chaos. And the, the so-called chaos was detailed in the, in the ensuing story that there were reported tensions between him and Rami Malek. 
that Singer was absent from the set on key days, that Tom Hollander reported at one point, he said to, quote, have briefly quit the film because of Singer's behaviour, but was persuaded to return, unquote. Um, Malik reportedly complained to Fox, uh, quote, charging Singer with not being present on set, unreliability and unprofessionalism. And all had seemingly been resolved and there'd been some kind of showdown or, or, or crunch talks over Thanksgiving. And then uh, Singer didn't return. Um, goes the story. Singer didn't return to the to the set. Fox decided to cut its losses and temporarily halted production on the movie, although didn't delay the release date at any point. Um, and within a day or two was looking at directors who could come in and finish the movie. Now, at the point all of this happened, there were reportedly two weeks left of filming, uh, of actual physical production left on Bohemian Rhapsody. So shooting had been going for, what, two months. So the bulk of the physical photography was complete. But there's far more extensive post-production work than I think was given credit for at the time, realising that Live Aid sequence was one key element of it. And then, of course, editing the film... Get it and, and getting it into a releasable state. Hence, the call went into Dexter Fletcher, and Dexter Fletcher agreed to come in and, and finish the um, complete the filming of the movie and handle the post production and the editing of it. Now, Fletcher wouldn't get a credit for this. Um, he is actually credited as executive producer on the end, uh, uh, in the final cut of the movie uh, that's in cinemas now. Um, but he, uh, he, would, he didn't attend the premiere. He didn't do interviews for it. In fact, he's gone on to do... He, he's now filming Rocket Man, the Elton John biopic um, that stars Taron Egerton. Um, Singer it remains the credited director of the movie. And Singer, um, should point out, he was... Um, he issued a statement of his own in the in the aftermath of um of the hollywood reporter report um and he was i mean he denied the reports he said i wanted nothing more than to be able to finish this project and help honor the legacy of freddie mercury and queen but fox would not permit me to do so because i needed to temporarily put my health and the health of my loved ones first um and singer said that he was um he was trying to tend to quote a gravely ill parent Come what may, um, the film was completed and within days of Singer departing the film, his offices at 20th Century Fox, uh, his production company Bad Hat Harry, um, were, were being shut down as well. So he did have, his deal had come to an end on October the 31st of that year. Bad Hat Harry had a three-year first look deal with the studio that hadn't been re that hadn't been renewed. Fox had already decided not to press ahead with that, and the reason he was uh, allowed to keep his offices on the lot was because he was finishing the Queen, uh, the, the Bohemian Rhapsody movie. And as soon as that was done, um, his relationship with 20th Century Fox ended. Now it's one of those things. How much do you read into that? I don't know. It, it, it was well known that Singer was developing. Uh, a take on 20,000 20, Leagues Under the Sea for Fox, a project that David Fincher had been working on at one point. Um, that project disappeared um, fairly quickly and there, there's little sign that that's coming back to life anytime soon. Um, and in the case of, um, I, I mean, in the case of Singer, actually, um, 
he uh, he is now attached to uh, a big budget remake. Well, he's he's been linked to a big budget remake of Red Sonja, which um, for which I mean the report I read said he was in line for a ten million dollar payday. Um, it's important. I, I do have to say um, that that nothing uh, that no charges or nothing formal against Singer was brought, and he has steadfastly denied everything that was um, that was put uh, put about at the time of his departure from Bohemian. Rhapsody. In terms of the finished film itself, I mean, it's quite interesting that um, if you go back right to the start of this story about what film Queen wanted and what film Sasha Baron Cohen wanted, it, it's it, if we go to the heart of that, it, it seems very clear we got the Queen version. It is a 12A certificate, uh, PG-13 um, Queen biopic. It does. It doesn't go deep. Uh, into the actual story of Freddie Mercury himself, certainly not towards the corners of his life. Um, and it plays a, a, a crowd-pleasing straight down the line um, blockbuster take on the Queen story and, and an enjoyable one. I, I, I did enjoy the film, but I, I, do, I do think, and I, 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 lots of better people than me have said this, I do feel that there is a, another film to be made of this story and probably a more interesting film. Whether it's more entertaining, don't know, um, but certainly that it explains the extensive, uh, the extensive arguments and pushback and debates over the screenplay and the direction of the film. And of course, this happens with, with a lot of films. That's not unique to Bohemian Rhapsody. But in the case of this one, what's interesting about its story is just how much of this story played out in the public eye how much of this story was known and when push came to shove how little it actually affected people's willingness um and i'm not saying it should or shouldn't but how little it, it, I, I merely make the point just because there's the old adage about bad press is is terrible and can ruin a movie and it's just like the bohemian rhapsody had a lot of bad press throughout the production when it came to the point to buy tickets for the film um, it was pretty much forgotten it was it was a film that an audience wanted to see was happy to pay for and as we speak it's riding high at the box office that then has been the latest episode of Film Stories. Um, you can find us in various places. Um, so on Twitter at Film Stories Pod, Facebook, Facebook.com slash Film Stories Online. Our website where you can find the full archive of podcasts is www.filmstories.co.uk. And at that website, you can order and subscribe to Britain's newest um, fairly mainstream film magazine, Film Stories Monthly. Uh, comes uh, The first issue is out um, two weeks after this podcast hits. So if you want to get hold of a copy of that and support what we're doing there, it'd be hugely appreciated. Again, that's www.filmstories.co.uk. And as for this podcast, well... We're still going and I'll be back soon with another batch of film stories. Take care.